Good morning again. So glad you're here. You'll have a seat break in a minute, but would you stand one more time? Let's go before the text this morning. We stand as we hear God's word. He deserves uh, for his word for us to stand when we hear it. We also, uh, when we preach, we, we talk about uh, this prayer of Shema, which is a, a prayer of rededication. It says, God, everything that's gone on this week, everything that's going to go on, I, I just need this moment where I need to hear from you in, in a real intentional way. And so this prayer really kind of helps us kind of focus in and lean in and just be able to, uh, for, for a moment, be able to be really intentional and say, God, we're here as a community. We're here sitting together in a room, and we want you to speak. And so it's an invitation for us to do so. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We're in Revelation 9. We're finishing up chapter 9 today, verses 13 through 21. We're on the sixth trumpet. We've been in a section of this, uh, of this letter of Revelation. We've been looking at these uh, trumpet judgments, and so we're here on the sixth one today. So we'll be closing out chapter 9, starting in verse 13. It says this, The six angels sounded his trumpet, And I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for the tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So like I said, we're in the middle of this uh, trumpet section of Revelation. It, It spans across about three chapters. So last week we got a released lion-like demon army. We had to deal with that. This week, we've got a released lion-like demon army. Again, awesome. We just, we're just going to keep leaning in to this reality. Now, by way of review, what we like to do, what, I, what I'm trying to do is help us kind of get a framework for Revelation as a whole so that we're not just understanding this particular passage today, but to give you kind of a framework in order to understand Revelation as a whole so that you on your own can sit down with a passage in Revelation and you yourself can walk through how to make sense 
of it. And like we've said before, John tells us in the opening few lines of this letter how to understand this letter. So by way of review, Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So we've been giving you these little kind of principles, these little ways in which to understand Revelation. The first one we've said over and over again is Revelation is meant to bring clarity, not confusion. Which might sound like, uh, this is like the most confusing letter in the whole Bible. What do you mean it's not supposed to bring confusion? I read it all the time, and I'm confused every time. Well, that's not the intent of the letter. Revelation is meant to bring clarity, not confusion. Again, the very opening line, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. This word revelation is the word apocalypsis or apocalypse, which does not mean the end of the world. It means to reveal or uncover. I hope you're getting this by now. It is meant to be seen as a revelation, a way to reveal and uncover what is going on so you will understand. So the churches, as they read it, will understand because everything is coming into, into view. The, the, the God's plan is in action. And so we want to show you, we want actually want to reveal this to you. This isn't meant to confuse. This is actually meant to clarify. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give you pictures to help clarify big truths. Sometimes the best way to describe a big, ginormous uh, truth is to give it in pictures. This is what we do with our children. Let, let, me, let me paint you a picture. Let me show you an illustration to help communicate this big truth that's going on. That's what revelation is. It's providing these pictures and images and symbols to help clarify uh, truth. And so what we're asked to do is we're actually asked to look to the past. We're asked to actually go back into the past and understand what the context was in the Bible and the historical context to make sense of those pictures. The reason that Revelation is confusing to us is because we don't know what it's referencing but they would have, or at least they would have known, they would have put in the work to be able to go back to the Old Testament and understand all the pictures and images. Very little in Revelation is new. It's referencing back to uh, other things. It's referencing scriptures that had come before. And so we're asked to go to the past and understand the Bible and understand the historical context of that day to help clarify these images that are coming up, to understand what the references actually are. And so it starts by looking in the past. Revelation is meant to bring clarity, not confusion, and so we go to the past to make sense of the pictures. But it doesn't end there, because if we just live in the past, it doesn't have any relevance to us today. So we're, we're invited to go to the past, but we don't stay there. We end up coming then to the present, because Revelation is meant to be functional, not futile. 
It's not to be supposed to be something that we read and go, oh, that, that's all that stuff that happened back then, or all, that's, that's all that stuff that's going to happen some other day. No, no, this letter is meant to be written that's going to inform and guide us in how we live today. So it's supposed to be functional in nature. It's actually supposed to be something that you don't ignore or say, yeah, I ought to know that. It's like, no, I need to know this. This, is, this helps guide the way I live in the world. It's not futile. It's functional. It, it's meant for the, the present, John says in that very first little, uh, first few lines, he says, this is what it's about. It's for everyone who reads the words aloud. Blessed are those who read the words aloud of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. So everyone who's reading it and hearing it, blessed are you, because this is for you right now. We've mentioned before that this is why when John was writing it, he wrote it to, and addressed it specifically to seven churches. And we know that there were more than seven churches in the first century back then. So was it only meant for those seven? If you were on the outside of those seven, it was like, well, that's, that letter's not really for me. No, the, the, the number, as we know, the number seven is symbolic. It means wholeness. It means completeness. And so by saying to the seven churches, John is saying, this, this is for you, but it's also for everybody in all times, in all places, to be blessed as you hear the words and to be blessed as you read them to yourself because you're getting an understanding of how God is going to do it. So revelation is meant to bring clarity, not confusion. Revelation is meant to be functional, not futile. But then we can't stop there either because we know this isn't the end of the story. So we look to the past that helps guide us in the present as we hope for the future, because we know what's happening now in our present is not the way it will end. We know there's actually more going on. So revelation is meant to bring peace, not panic. Right? When most people hear revelation, they go, ooh, that's a little good luck, right? Because it actually invokes fear for a lot of people. But that's not the point of the letter. He says it. He says, blessed are those who read it, blessed who hear it, and t- because you need to take heart. Take heart as you read this. This isn't supposed to scare you. It's actually supposed to build hope in you. It's supposed to bring peace, not panic. Take heart what is written in here. Because the time is near. It's coming. Get ready. This is exciting. And so we go to the past to bring clarity, which then guides us in the present, functionally, as we hope and it brings peace for us as we look ahead to the, to the future and we get a picture of what the end of the story is. And so I've argued this before, and again, this is a framework I hope that you will take so that you can continue to read Revelation and, and dive into the depth. We're just scratching the surface of these messages that you could take it and go, okay, I've got this scripture. I've got this uh, uh, weird-looking scripture here. How, how do I make sense of this in Revelation? A faithful approach to Revelation begins by looking to the past, which guides us in the present as we hope for the future. We take a bite, as I said in a while back, of the whole cupcake. So here we are again. We're in a, another difficult passage. Lion-like armies, demonic armies, coming to kill a third of mankind. What is going on here? Well, let's start in the past, shall we? Let's go. 
Now, we've stressed the last couple of weeks as we looked at as a whole at these trumpet, uh, as these, this trumpet judgment, that we've said before, and we've said it again and again, that the prevailing story that's being communicated with these trumpets is that of the Exodus story. It's the plagues of Egypt. These trumpets are kind of the second uh, string of plagues. And so when you were reading it, you go, I, I know this story. I've heard this story before. And so Exodus is actually going to help guide our understanding of what's going on here. We actually look back to the Exodus story, and it helps kind of guide us in understanding then what's going on in this second Exodus story. Because you have hail, and darkness, and water into blood, and locusts. And now, the final plague today, the one that we are reading and looking at today, is the death of a third of mankind, or how it matches in the story, the death of the firstborns of Egypt. There is this demonic force that comes, that kills a large portion of the population. You'd read that and go, yeah, yeah, that's the final one. That's, that's how the story ended back then. And that, so that would make sense and why that's how it would end right now. And like these trumpets, these plagues were meant to wake people up and get them ready, to call them to repentance. That's what the plagues in Egypt were meant to do. And that's what the plagues here in the second Egypt, the second Exodus, these second plagues are meant to do. It's meant to wake people up, to call them to repentance. It's a judgment that says, wake up, take heed, understand what's going on here, with the purpose and, and the desire for some to be called back to repentance through them. And lo and behold, we actually see that in the Exodus story. It's kind of slipped in there, but we, we, we actually do see it. In the Exodus story, there were actually some Egyptians who heed the warnings of the plagues and actually join in in God's redemption. We see it first, a little bit of it in Exodus 9. So in Exodus 9, this is right before the hail comes. And so God warns his people, and he warns all of Egypt, because again, this is meant for everybody. It's meant to wake them up. And he says, I'm going to send some hail, some really, really big hail. It's going to like carve off trees, and it's going to kill anything that's outside. And so he warns everyone. He says, if you believe in this, get your animals, get your servants, get yourselves inside, because it's going to come. And slipped kind of right in here is this little, this little thing that's very interesting. It says, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their servants and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their servants and livestock in the field. So it's almost like this, um, this litmus test. Like, are you going to believe the Lord? Well, here's a tangible way you're going to do that. Are you going to bring your animals in or are you not? And that's going to be a determiner of life or death. Are you going to live by life or are you going to live by death? Are you going to believe and fear the word of the Lord? Are, are these plagues starting to wake you up yet? Because if they are, by the hail, you should probably be— uh, you should probably know something big's happening at this point, right? And lo and behold, a few Egyptians do. We don't know how many. It doesn't give us a number, but some Egyptians actually do that. Then, when finally the end of the last plague, when the firstborns are killed, and finally Pharaoh lets them go, and they start to leave and head out in Exodus 12, then we get an even bigger clue and into this, the, these officials, the ones that are starting to heed the warnings. And so, you know what? I, I think this is the real God. I think, I think I want to join in on what's going on there. So in Exodus 12, they sneak this in. The Israelites, they journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot. 
there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Those are all the Israelites. About 600,000 men uh, beside the women and children who left. These were the Israelites. But then, look what it says. But many other people, literally the translation there is a mixed multitude, many other people went up with them. Interesting. So these plagues actually accomplished in a little way. We, again, we don't know how many. We don't know how many they were. It could have just been a couple. It could have been hundreds. It could have been thousands. We don't know. But the plagues did their job. It was meant to call people to repentance. And lo and behold, some people went with them. They said, you know what? I've seen these plagues. I've woken up. I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm going with you. I want to be part of this thing God's doing. I want to be part of this, this new people of God. And so they accomplished, the plagues accomplished exactly what they're meant to do. This is what the plagues in our new story is meant to do. To wake up, repent, see the writing on the wall here, and come back. Now with the final plague, the death of the firstborn, what's interesting is we kind of, again, we're getting clues into the old story that helps illuminate now this story in Revelation. We talked about this already. We talked about this last week, that there was this destroyer, that God permitted to enter the houses of those who did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. It, it's described this way. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer, which is interesting. He, he allows this destroyer to come through, to enter your houses, and strike you down. So there's this destroyer who's been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year, and he was released. He was permitted to go that which he was not allowed to go before. He's now released to go strike down a bunch of people of the population, a bunch of the population. And the rest of Egypt, the ones who were not killed by this death plague, those who did, were not a part of the mixed multitude who went out, they still did not repent from the work of their hands. They still didn't repent. Well, there were some, but a large majority of them, I imagine, still didn't repent, even as they held their firstborns in their arms. They still didn't repent. Now, if you're reading Revelation 9 at the time in the early church, you know the story you're seeing these connections and these callbacks. So you're reading this letter about why things are going bad in the world right now, why it's so hard to be a Christian in the first century. And you're going, oh, I get it. That's probably what the Israelites felt in Egypt as well. There's these plagues that are coming. They're meant to bring people to repentance. They're meant to do that. They're meant to invite you to either choose life or choose death. It's, it's a choice that these plagues are, are offering, and some choose life. Some who were dead, their eyes were opened, and, and, and they came. And, and we pray for that for our first century world, that some through these plagues, some through this, this hardship of this world, that some will come. But now I, now I understand why we're here, and they, that would have made sense to them. There's other things in this passage that well, they'd start to put the pieces together, too, because our passage this morning, it, it describes it as a death plague that comes through this demonic, lion-like force who were released to cross over the Euphrates 
twice 10,000 times 10,000 strong to bring about death. Okay, that's what this passage is. If I could just kind of like summarize it, right? This passage is about a death plague that comes through a demonic lion-like force who were released to cross over the Euphrates twice 10,000 times 10,000 strong to bring about death. And as they're reading this, they'd have been like, oh, okay. the, 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 the light bulbs would be going off in their head. Now, in the Old Testament, let's take a look at a few of these. Let's kind of, again, we're, we're using this, we're going to the past, we're understanding what they would have read and what they would have understand to help us, guide us in how we understand this for us today. So, let's take a look at a few of these. In the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Abraham, who is the father of Israel. And he says, out of you, I'm going to create these people, and I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a promised land that you're going to live with. Genesis 15 says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land. And then he goes, here's the land. He actually defines it. Here's the land I'm going to give you. From the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And so the Euphrates was a boundary marker. It defined God's people. It was, here's where you live. And then here's this physical barrier. Here's this Euphrates River. And then on the other side is not where you live. This is where the other nations live. And so I've created this boundary marker between you and the other nations through this Euphrates River. And this is your boundary mark of, to define who you are. So if you're reading this and it says this, this army, this demonic-like army crosses over the Euphrates, you'd go, ooh, they're in our land now. That, that has historically been the case where we could point to and say, this is our land, border their land. But now, for a season, for appointed hour and day and month and year, for, for, for a season, it looks like this army, looks like this, this force, this demonic force, is being permitted to cross over. And they're going to mingle with us now. They're, they're going to be all up in our business now. We used to have borders, but for a season, God's going to allow this force to cross over into our world. And the number of this force in the passage, 10,000 times 10,000, is a numerical clue. Lots of times when you see a number in scripture. It's a reference to something else. It's this really cool way of, I'm not going to just say it, I'm just going to kind of subtly say it, and then you're going to go back and understand what I'm really saying. And particularly when, when John says, I heard the number, right? It's like this, he's, he's saying, go back, know what I'm saying, 10,000 times 10,000, right? So if you go back, this number is used a couple of times in the Bible, and they both signify the same thing. In the book of Daniel, we get a picture of what God's people will do in the final judgment. Daniel is prophecy too, so he's speaking with pictures and images, just like Revelation is doing. And so there's this moment in Daniel, in Daniel 7, where he's describing the final judgment. And he's describing God's people that are going to gather around him. They're going to gather around him to sit at his feet and hear the book being opened. Ah, the book again being opened. Interesting. In Daniel, that's right. It's, it's all callbacks to things that have already been said before. They're going to sit around and they're going to hear him and they're going to submit to his authority. And it says this, A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 
10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and the court was seated and the books were open. So you have this people and Daniel says uh, the the number of people that gather around the Lord is going to be 10,000 times 10,000. And so they would have known that number. That's not, that's an odd number. That's an odd way of saying it. So if, if, if John's going to say that, they're going to go, oh, right, because I remember back in Daniel, that's how many people gathered around the judgment seat at the end. This is God's people. But John actually doubles down on that. He uses that number earlier in Revelation itself. Do you remember? It's in Revelation 5, when the people of God gather around his throne. And he says this, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and then 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So this number, this 10,000 times 10,000, twice, both in Daniel and then in the very passage itself, is meant to represent who are on God's side. God's people, God's angels, God's, God's work, his people. This is what this number signifies. But now, it's being used to describe the demonic army. But notice there's a slight difference. How many are are there in the demonic army? Twice 10,000 times 10,000. Interesting. So if 10,000 times 10,000 has always been to communicate God's people, well, this army, it's twice that. It's twice 10,000 times 10,000. Ooh, but here's the thing. John says that he hears the number. He hears it. He doesn't see it. He hears it. Now, we've seen this before. He's actually made this distinction before, several times in Revelation, between what he hears and then what he sees. If we go back to Revelation 7, if we go back to Revelation 7, we see this once before. It says this, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. This is the number I've heard. There's a specific number, and it's all Israel. And he hears that number. But that was his perception. What happens uh, in like five verses from then, he turns around and he realizes his perception is wrong. Right? After this, I looked. I, I, I heard a number. So 145 was just Israel. All the tribes of Israel, that's the number I heard. But then I actually looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne and before God. And so he sees, he hears one number, which is his perception, what he, what he thinks is happening. But then he turns around and he sees. And he realizes his perception is wrong. John says there's this army coming. It's going to be a nasty one. It's going to kill a third of mankind. And here's the number I heard. He says that specifically. Here's the number I heard. It's going to be twice 10,000 times 10,000. It's going to feel real bad. It's going to feel like we're outnumbered here. It's going to feel overwhelming. It's going to feel like there's no hope but it's not what I saw. It's only what I feel. It's only what I heard. You you know if if something's not true or not 
uh, this little trick I've learned over years. If, if someone's telling me something, I know it's not true if it starts with, well, I heard. Right? If you, if you hear someone go, well, I, he- I, I heard that so-and-so, I always take that with a grain of salt. I, I'm, I'm glad that's what you heard. I'm glad that's your perception. But when someone says, no, I saw it. I saw it. Now you've got my attention. Because there's a difference between what you feel, what you perceive, what you hear, and what you see. And John says, hey, look, look, there's an army coming. It's going to be 10,000, twice. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. It's going to feel like we're outnumbered, guys. It's going to feel like there's no hope. It's going to feel like it's going to be overwhelming. But remember, it's just what I hear. It's just what I hear. It's going to feel inevitable. But take heart. And what are they to do? They're about to bring about death. But there's some clues even in this that give us an idea of what this really means. There are clues that tell us that this isn't just a physical death, that there's something bigger happening here. Because what kills them, if you read the passage, what kills them is fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths. They say that twice. They repeat it twice. Whenever anything's repeated in a passage, take note of that. What is killing a third of this population? It's fire, and it's smoke, and it's sulfur coming out of their mouths. Something bigger is happening. There's these images, and these images are, are asking us to remember and actually think through this and say, these are all images of the final judgment. This is how the final judgment is described, with this burning sulfur, uh, smoke, and th- that's where people are going to go at the end. At the end, that's where people are going to go who don't have the seal. That's the, where people are going to go who have not taken note and taken heed and, and turned in repentance in face of all the plagues that went on. That's where they go. In fact, let's take a look. Revelation, the end of the story. This is where people go at the end of the story when it's final and it's done. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars. Heard that before? That's an that's ex- exact callback to Revelation 9. So they're using that exact same language again, again, to communicate it here in this final judgment. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Oh, I've heard that too. This is the second death, it says. This is the second death. So this is a direct callback to our passage this morning. All the same things that are going, all these people, but now, instead of a physical death, there's something that's happening that's greater. There's this this spiritual death, and the passage calls it the second death. So yes, all all, all the the, the demonic forces, you know, back in Revelation 9, they're killing people, but they're doing it with this sulfur and this fire and this smoke, and it's coming from their mouth, and it's this idea. We're supposed to make the connection here that, yes, there might be a physical death coming, but there's actually something much bigger here. There's a first death, But there's a second one. Revelation makes this distinction between the first and second death. The first death is physical, and we will all have to experience the first death. There's two guarantees in life, right? What's the first? Death. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ went through it too. He walked the first death with us. We all will experience the first death, the physical, tangible death. But there is another death that comes. And this is a spiritual, eternal death. A death of the soul. A death when sin, you are dead to your own sin. And what this demonic army is after is the whole person. They may carry out the first death, but their end game is something bigger. Their end game is the second spiritual, eternal death. That's what they're really after. And if physical death isn't paired with that, okay. But what we're really after, what the callback is, at the end of the story, with the exact same language, is actually a second death. A greater death, a more important death, the death of your soul itself. It's meant to carry out, and that this army is, is, is bringing death, but what they're really after is something much bigger, the death of your very soul. But this terrifying story, and it is terrifying, this terrifying story has a hopeful ending because earlier in Revelation, it reminds us of something. And we didn't look at this specific passage, so let's go back and read it now. He's talking to one of the churches, and he's trying to give them encouragement. So he says this, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He's talking to his church here. And I tell you, the devil, that, that demonic force, the devil, he will put some of you in present, uh, prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for a while, for 10 days, but fa- be faithful, even to the point of death, even to the point of that first death. Be faithful. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. See, there's a demonic force. Twice 10,000 by 10,000 strong. Lion-like. And it's after your soul. And it might, it might be after you physically. We know that sin causes death as well. The first death is, is not out of the question, as, as we see here in this passage. You, you might be brought to the point of death. But take heart. Take heart. You won't be hurt at all by the second death. So let's, let's put this all together, shall we? For these early churches, they are hard-pressed on every side. They're perplexed. They're persecuted. They're struck down. And the destroyer, the demonic, lion-like force has been released, permitted to cross over into the world. And it feels like you're outnumbered. It feels overwhelming. It feels inevitable. Bringing death from its mouth. And it may be a physical death, but the end game is a spiritual, eternal death. And yet, remember, take heart. You will not be harmed by the death that matters most are we preaching yet, right? That's it. That's the story. We look to the past, which now guides us in the present. We look to the past. We understand the images and the pictures and the symbols. It brings us clarity, which now we can then bring and say, okay, Let's, get, let's, let's understand what this means for us in the present. Because blessed is everyone who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it. So hear this. You and I continue to be part of this story. 
This isn't just their story. This isn't just an Israelite in Egypt's story. We continue to live this story. You and I continue to be part of it. God's people continue to be hard-pressed on every side. We talk to some of our partners around the world. We know this. And we, you and I, we might not experience this as much in the, in the suburbs and sticks, but God's people around the world, and even you, in our own ways, we're hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. And the destroyer, the demon-like lion force, has been released into this world. First Peter, he puts, it, he puts it this way. In Peter, he puts it this way. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Oh, the lion guy. Yeah, I, I know him. He looks around for someone to devour. And he has been permitted for a season to cross over into this world. We live in a world where the enemy has been given. They have not taken. They have not secured. They have been given Dominion for a time. In Luke, uh, the temptation story, we actually get a clue into this. The devil leads Jesus up to a high place and he shows him in in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and he says to Jesus, I will give you all authority and splendor. It has been given to me. I've got it for a season. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anyone. I want. You see, our enemy has crossed over, friends. They're not on the other side of Euphrates anymore. For a time and an hour, the destroyer has been permitted to cross over into this world. This is why you flip on the news, and in three minutes you go, what is, go- what is going on? What's happening? The destroyer has come. He's here. He's been given authority, given, given, but he has it for a season. He's been released. And it feels like we're outnumbered, doesn't it? Man, there's stories that are coming out of our community about just uh, parents who are just trying to figure out how how do we faithfully teach our kids in, in the public school system? Like, I feel completely overwhelmed. I feel completely outnumbered of all the voices, of all the noise, of all the media that's communicating and preaching and advancing all the things in Revelation 9 that I'm trying desperately to teach them a better way. It it, it feels enormous. I get images and ideas and propaganda pushed at me every single billboard I drive by. I feel completely outnumbered. It's overwhelming. It's inevitable. And what this enemy does is it comes to bring death from its mouth. To communicate lies about what is real and what is true and what is good. This is why the death comes from its mouth. That's where, it, that's where it starts. Believing the lies of the enemy that puts you in prison. Jesus is talking to a group of people who are spiritually dead. And he calls them slaves to sin. And he tells them that the only thing 
that will set you free is the truth. He says, the truth will set you free. And then he says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say, because you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. We know that's true. He's a murderer, not just physical. He wants something bigger in mind. He wants your soul. He's a murderer. And he has been from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of liars. You see, our enemy comes with a weapon from his mouth to lie, to keep you dead. And he sends his army into the world after that second death. He's a liar. This is what the demonic force does. It shoots death from its mouth. And there are a lot of lies today. A lot of lies today. I know your deeds, says Revelation 3. Earlier on in the passage we looked at, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive. And this is him talking to the church, mind you. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And again, we know that he's not talking about a physical death, if, a physical death, because if he were, they wouldn't be reading it because they'd be dead, right? So we know there's something deeper here going on. You have a, you have a reputation. You, you look the part on the outside, but you're a dead man walking on the inside. The enemy force is winning. They're doing exactly what they were commissioned to do. You're believing lies. And out of their mouths, the weapons has hit you in the hearts. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wake up, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Wake up. You're dead, he says to this church. You're dead. And you have all the appearances of being alive. Will, will, you, will you salvage the little life that's left? Will, will you start to breathe and will you allow the Holy Spirit to breathe new life into you? I found your deeds and you need to live. You need to live. You need to live. There's a uh, uh, recording artist that I like. His name's Ben Rector. He has this song. It's called The Song for the Suburbs. This is for us, most of us. Sticks are the suburbs. And in this song, he's, he's, he's sort of lamenting the fact for himself, personally. It's a song for himself as much as anyone else. He says, when I live in the comforts of a society that allows for com comforts, I slowly, if I'm not careful, I slowly wither away. I slowly die a thousand little deaths of the comforts of my surrounding. He would read Revelation 9 and go, ooh, I need to I need to take heart too. And so in the chorus, he, he writes this. He says, because I want to live until I die. Until I die, I want to live. Don't let the devil bury me alive. When my heart stops, let me go home. But don't let the suburbs kill my heart and soul. Friends, we want to live. 
then this lion-like demonic force wants nothing more than to kill your soul. And they'll come after it because they are permitted for a season to cross over. But remember, take heart, guys. Because those of us who are sealed will not be harmed by the death that matters most. And now we look to the future. We understood the past. That help understand where we're at in the present as we begin to hope for the future. Let's invite the band up as we reflect on that. It's a story for the past that continues now in the present as we hope for the future because we will not be harmed by the death that matters most as we continue to live into the grace of Jesus Christ. So what we find at the end of this passage, and this will kind of conclude for a, a bit, there's going to be some interludes now for the next couple of weeks, so we're kind of going to chill on the, the trumpet stuff for a little bit. We're going to move on here. But what we find at the end of this story, we are told that despite all the plagues, after the six trumpets, nobody repented. Nobody repented. At least in the, in the Egypt story, a few Egyptians woke up. At least a few of them, I can imagine, went with them. We're told here, after all of that, nobody, nobody repented. And the reason is, is because our salvation does not rest on our intuition and our savviness and our logical deductions. Our salvation does not rest on trying harder, doing enough good deeds. The reason that we can take heart because the second death Will not, pat, will not touch us is because we had, a, we had a someone who walked through that first death with us and then was raised from the grave, resurrected, didn't taste or touch or see that second death and then invited us to follow him in that path. Why can we take heart? Because somebody went before us and walked that very path and touched and tasted death, but overcame the grave so that we might not have to experience that second death. We don't have to be buried alive. We don't have to live dead lives. We don't have to believe the lies of the enemy who's crossed over into our world and has dominion for a season, for an hour and a day. And man, does it feel like it's, we're outnumbered. heard the number and it feels overwhelming it feels like we're losing it feels like there's no way we can stand up and then someone stands up we feel hard pressed on every side we feel perplexed we feel persecuted we feel struck down and we are hard pressed on every side but we're not crushed perplexed but not despaired persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus Christ so that that life, the life of Jesus, may be revealed in our body. You see, we carry around the death of Jesus so that we might not experience the second one. We carry around the death of Jesus day out day in, day out, living alive, knowing that that second death can't touch us. The demonic forces will come. It feels overwhelming. 
it feels like we're outnumbered and they're after our souls. And they will lie to you and you will hear the lie day after day after day. The lies will never stop. And yet take heart, friends, because we have one who went through it first. And so as we carry around the body, in our body, the death of Jesus, we might experience the life of Jesus as well because he said it was finished and then he raised to dead to show us that there is a way past it. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so central. It's the cornerstone of what we are and what we believe. It's not just some abstract idea that we like because it shows off God's power. The resurrection is the very thing that declares and defines that we might pass over that second death. Because Jesus came for the first death. He experiences it right along. He walks with us and will walk with us through that first one. And then he says, I beat it. You don't have to believe that sulfur and that fire and that smoke anymore. That won't touch you at all. Because I'm going to win. And I have completed it. And I've conquered the grave for you. And so we celebrate that as a people. He turns graves into gardens. And so we worship him together. Let's do that. Lord, we want to just come and worship you. We know there is a force, God. There is a force in this world active the roaring lion that roams around looking for someone to devour. And it feels completely like we're going to lose. It feels, it feels, God, like we're totally outnumbered. That this force has ultimate authority. But God, it was given to him and it will be taken away because you conquered the grave. And so we repent. We don't want to be sleepy suburb and suburb suburbians anymore, God. Help us day by day to live into the death in our bodies, live into your death so that we might experience your life and not believe those lies from all sides. Pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but not abandoned or destroyed. And so we sing that now and we celebrate that together as a body so that we might go and proclaim that to the world. Hear our song now, God. We love you.